Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, my guest was Adam Avermescu. He's the head of customer education at Checker. He's the host of his own podcast, The Customer Education Lab. And he also has a new book out called Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Their Customers Smarter. So as you might guess, Adam and I talked about customer education. And I, I think there's a lot of myths around this space, this concept. On one side, we have people who say that products should be intuitive and there should be no real need for education. And then we have advocates like Adam, who know holistic customer education models are necessary. So this all got me to thinking, customer education has changed a lot. I mean, customer education used to be a 200-page instruction manual. It came with every new product. I know you and I probably never read stuff like that cover to cover, or maybe never even looked at it at all until we got stuck. But recently I've noticed some downsides to just pure intuitive design and no quote unquote instructions. I keep learning new things about my iPhone that I wish I had known years ago. You know, like if you hold the space bar down, you can move the cursor. This got me to thinking about, you know, how customer education has transformed and why it still and always will be necessary in the world of product, even with well-designed intuitive products like the iPhone. Because, well, you'd like to know some of these things, say, four years ago. So when I think about it, there's many ways to go about it. But what you really want to know is, is your customer education program truly effective? In this week's episode of Product Love, Adam dives deep into how to build truly effective customer education programs and what to avoid. So enough chit-chat from me. Drop me a line at eBodak on Twitter or email me at eBodak at pendo.io. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I am here with Adam. Adam is a soon-to-be published author and customer education and training expert. Adam, I've known for quite a while now, but why don't you give the rest of us a little overview of your background? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Eric. So for everyone out there, my name is Adam Evermescu. I have about 10 years of experience in customer education. I actually started in instructional design, working with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, higher ed. And I've been building customer education programs for tech companies in various sectors, usually from the startup or growth stage. And more recently, I've released a podcast of my own, which Eric, hopefully you'll be able to join. It's called uh, C-Lab, the Customer Education Lab. So that's C-E Lab. And I am about to release a book, actually by the time this airs, it'll probably be out, called Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Their Customers Smarter. You can find it on Amazon. It's got the blue and orange cover with the brain bulb on it. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Super exciting news. So I have to start by asking, why a book? Why did you decide to write a book? So it's the same reason why I love documentation and education in the first place. When people ask me the same question over and over and over, my impulse is not just to answer it once, but also to try to find a way to answer it for other people as well. So I thought a book might be a good way to do that. So I think it's a great way to do that. Now, talk to me about what got you psyched about customer education. Like, what got you passionate about that? Why did you move into this space of all spaces? 
You know, I, having started in instructional design and training, I already was really fascinated by the way that people learn and the way that people make arguments that actually land in other people's heads. And one thing that I started to notice was that there was a lot of information out there on internal training and corporate learning and development, but there actually wasn't a whole lot out there about customer education because the world of customer education has been changing so rapidly. So it was something that honestly, because I had stumbled into it and couldn't find many resources about, I started trying to figure out what's out there. How do you do this right? What are the best practices? So tell me why customers should care about customer education. Well, you know, I think one thing I alluded to a moment ago is that customer education is changing. But the reason that it's changing is because the way the companies operate is changing, especially with the move to SaaS businesses and businesses living in the cloud. You're competing more than ever for the customer's loyalty, right? Retention isn't guaranteed. It's an ongoing activity. So that also means that instead of just having an initial onboarding training where you sit the customer down in a room and hope they learn something, ongoing education is necessary. The other factor that I've seen is that training and products in general is becoming a little more consumerized. So for a company, the company that educates differentiates themselves in the market. So do you think product teams and, and companies in general, do you think they focus on customer education enough? I don't think so. I, I think that there are a few myths out there that affect customer education in product. Specifically, there's this myth that I've heard a lot, and I, I think it's starting to subside a little bit, but it was really prevalent when I started in customer education, was that you know if my product is so intuitive, I actually shouldn't have to educate customers on it. It was the, uh, you know, I don't have to teach my grandmother how to use an iPhone. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot. In fact, I, I was speaking at a conference a little while back and the guy came up and he's like, I agree with most of what you said. But, you know, when you talk about teaching users, I feel like should just go back to UX and they should fix the UX problem. So users just intuitively get it. And that's, that's, that's prevalent. That myth is still there. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a part of it that's true, right? If your UX is bad, you should fix it. Customer education shouldn't be a layer that you paint over a bad product design with. And, and in fact, I found this quote from Casey Winters, who's the former entrepreneur in residence at Greylock. And he said, there's a, there's a quote popular in Silicon Valley that says, if your design requires education, it's a bad design. It sounds smart, but it's actually dangerous. Product education frequently helps users understand how to get value out of a product and create long-term engagement. And so I think, you know, if you're a customer-focused product and your value is really on empathizing with your customers and showing them not just how to use that UI, but really how to get value out of your product, you have to build empathy with the customer and you have to find ways to educate customers as they use the product. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you just covered a few ways that customer education impacts the craft of product management. What else? How else does it help influence impact? Well, you know, when I was at Optimizely, one of my previous roles, one of my catchphrases there that people definitely got tired of me saying, but quoted back to me all the time was, we are all educators. And what I meant by that is that, you know, customer education isn't just a thing that happens in a department called customer education or education services or training. It has to happen in all customer facing parts of the business so that customers ultimately adopt, succeed and grow. It's the exact same idea that, you know, customer success is not just a thing that a customer success team does. Customer success is a journey that your customer is going on. So we have to be able to educate our customers in the one-to-one -one interactions. We have pre-sales, you know, with an AE or with a solutions engineer. 
post sales with a CSM or an account manager, marketing materials, the way that we release assets, webinars, eBooks, and, and of course, and this is the one I think is, is often forgotten in the product itself. A product has to educate the customer how to use it as you're using it. And going back to what you originally said, right? In-product education doesn't mean bad design. No, it doesn't mean bad design. And in fact, I think that good in-product education doesn't paint over a bad UX. It complements a great UX. I would completely agree. So when we take this a little bit further, you know, how should product leaders look to incorporate education and training into their product at a strategic level? Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, the first thing I would say is after you've gotten over that bias against customer education in your product, first of all, just actually include it. It's not that, it, it seems like a big psychological hurdle to say, oh, I'm getting over the hump of not wanting to educate people on my product because I think it's a compensation for a bad UX. But once you've gotten over that hump, there's kind of another thing that seems a little terrifying, which is, okay, well, now that I've committed to do it, what do I actually do? And I would say this is a great opportunity to test, learn, and iterate. So actually commit to doing something for in-product education, because this is a, an initiative that I see at least get sidelines for product teams. It seems like a nice to have for most companies until it's way too late. Yeah, you know, I was just still stuck on this whole myth thing, right? You know, I'm thinking about it and I've been around for a long time. So I think about, you know, the manuals that used to come with software products, right? You'd have like a 200 page bound manual that'd be in your software product. And, you know, most of us and probably all of us never read those things. And then, you know, we moved to the point where people don't want to provide any instructions and, and any education in some cases. And it's like the pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction. And then you start to see things like, People discovering features in iPhones that they didn't realize. Oh, did they know if you hold down this button, it does X? This is like a game changer. And we're like eight years into like this feature being available in an iPhone. And I'm like, shit, I'm kind of pissed about this. I wish I knew about this eight years ago, but no one bothered to do any education. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that probably happened during the manual days too, because you would publish this really extensive manual. And then of course, nobody would read it. Or you would do these long in-person certification courses that would be a week long in a classroom and you do it at a training center and people would just forget all that stuff. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that when you're a customer and you're expected to learn and process everything up front, you're not going to retain most of it. You're only going to retain the stuff that you're actually ready for. So I would say strategically, if you start from this position of customer empathy, you have to be able to design your education around key moments in the customer's life cycle. So, you know, one clear example here is onboarding. When you are having the, the first time user experience or even the, the new user experience in your product, what is it that the customer really needs to be able to do at that moment? That's the education to provide them, not all the context that might've been in the manual. And then, you know, as you're kind of playing out from that, think about the path to full value. That means you're not just providing a feature tour. You're not just providing that map of the UI or coach marks in an app or something like that, you're really thinking about how to progressively onboard that user so that they're only learning about the things that they need to know at that moment to get set up and you're not cognitively overloading them. But then over time, you can help them find that path to value with some of those either you know tricky wickets, as I've heard it called, or, or common errors that they might get stuck with along the way that might prevent them from getting to value. Or you know, like you said, Eric, some of those things that they might only learn eight years in if nobody prompts them to learn it. So those kind of like use cases and pro tips. 
So it sounds like people need like a push and pull strategy. I think so. You know, just like thinking about how you might surface any other modal in your app or tool tips or things like that, you really need to understand what information should be pushed to your user because they might not discover it otherwise and it's important for them to discover it or things that they should pull because it's a moment of need for them and they've decided they want that information. So, you know, if you're too push heavy, think about the first time you open an app and you get that really long, you know, 23 step feature tour. And, you know, I've, I've seen some of Pendo's research on this as well, where people drop off in those guides after what, like three steps, something like that, right? Yeah. It happens earlier than people would expect. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, that was validated too, during our time doing in-product education at Optimizely. Every time that we did a tour that was a little longer than that, we would notice that drop off as well. So we either had to find strategies to get people to continue engaging with content that we pushed to them, or we had to let them pull it a little more. So, you know, the push, for example, we would use during those key moments, surfacing a modal when the user doesn't know what they don't know, so to speak. So maybe they're, they're an advanced user, they've been using the product for a while, and we know that there's a certain feature they haven't used yet. That might be a time to push. Or maybe they're a couple weeks into their onboarding and there's a key action that they haven't performed yet. That might be a good time to push. But we also undervalue letting our, our users pull sometimes, right? So when the customer knows they need something, they might want to click a tooltip or they might want to go to an onboarding center or they might want to click on a badge to get more information. And that kind of makes in-product education the front door to future learning because maybe they click on one of those tooltips and there's a little learn more link in there. And that learn more link takes them to a great help center article or the learning center or online academy. And you won't be putting all of your education in product, but the product is, is leading you to more places in a learning journey. Yeah, I know I'm one of those people too that is more pull-oriented than push-oriented, right? I like to get push things that are going to dramatically impact what I'm currently doing. Like I love to know if like something's not going to be available when I normally use it. That's an important push. And then I know personally I get really frustrated when I can't pull, like when I don't understand something, whether it's, you know, a label that just makes no sense to me because I maybe I'm not as versed in the area as the product manager was, or it's, you know, a concept I just don't fully understand how to utilize. And then there's no pull. And then I'm forced to do what I hate to do, which is contact support, right? I hate that. Yeah. Nobody wants to contact support. And in fact, you know, there, there used to be this, this perception that people wanted to talk to a support agent, right? Because it was very personalized and delightful but, you know, the research that's come out in the past several years on this is that most people want to self-serve if it's something that actually can be self-served. They don't want to wait on the phone. They don't want to wait for an email to come back. They actually just want an answer so they can go on with their day. Yeah, and I think it's in everyone's best interest. The companies, the vendors, they don't want to provide more support than they need to from the standpoint of it's a cost to them. And users, well, it's a cost to them too, in terms of time. No one wants to wait in a support queue. You know, no one wants to get, you know, sidetracked from accomplishing whatever tasks got them down this path to begin with. Yeah, I think support efficiency is a really interesting way to think about it. And that's something that I always try to track as a customer education leader is what impact are the materials that I produce having on the customer support ratios and ticket deflection. But, you know, the other thing that I think about is the lost potential for a customer. So 
especially during an onboarding and especially in a product that isn't actively managed, like say you have a free trial or a freemium product, a customer's inability to get support right now or a customer's inability to answer a question really quickly and then move on and get their value might not mean that they're writing into support and running up your support volume. In a lot of cases, it just means that they're not going to be using your product. And that's essentially a churned customer or lost potential. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I know when I'm trying out a product, if I'm at the point where I have to call support, there has to be a huge amount of value I'm getting out of that product to actually become a paying customer if during my trial, you know, I have to reach out to the support team. Yeah, and it's an undervalued use case sometimes for customer education. We think of customer education as something that happens once the client has signed or when we're onboarding an account, but we don't always think about that moment, that that conversion moment that happens during a free trial. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it does vary a lot. I mean, the more B2C it is, the more the least likely I'm going to want to reach out to support, the more it's a B2B and kind of part of my company or my enterprise or my department or the core part of my jobs that I need to get done, the more likely I'm going to be, you know, flexible. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> if I don't have to reach out, it's way better than having to reach out. Definitely. And, and we've seen that validated in our customer research as well as general customer research, both at Optimizely and at Checker. Cool, cool. And you mentioned something too that maybe we should define a little bit. And that, that's what, what is support deflection or ticket deflection? Can you define that for people who are listening that don't know? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the concept here is how many tickets aren't you getting compared to what you might have got otherwise? So One of the ways that I like to calculate this is through a customer contact rate. So you basically take the number of support tickets that are coming in and divide that against uh, some proportion of your customer base. So you could say number of tickets coming in per 100 customers. And ideally, you want that not to be trending upward over time. Awesome. Thanks. So one of the other things you've written about is the importance of becoming a champion of, I think, what you describe as learner-first design. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, before I wrote this book, I was writing a lot of articles on LinkedIn as well. And one of the most popular articles, I didn't expect it to resonate, but it was called, Customers Don't Care About Your Product, So Don't Educate Them Like They Do. And so I actually adapted it into a section of my book. The idea is that it comes from this really big perception gap that we have because our lives and our jobs revolve around using our product when we work at a certain company. We know all the features and hacks. We know how to operate and work around the product, but our customers don't. And there's this perception gap that, you know, they've, they've done experiments around in, in social science and even, I think, cognitive science to show that when we're an expert in a certain area, we have what's called the curse of knowledge. And it's impossible for us to remember what it was like not to know something, which means that when we're trying to educate someone on how to use a product that we're an expert in, we really forget what they care about. And we also forget what's going to be hard for them. So there's a few effects that come out of this. One is that we have to get really good at increasing the user's desire at every touch point we have. So a lot of the times we might say something like, hey, have you tried using our Geo's feature. And, you know, this is an example that we have at at Checker. Geo's are a really powerful feature that we have at Checker to help our customers divide their background check business into different geographical locations. And what our customers don't know is that it doesn't just help them set up different localities, but it also automatically applies all the compliance laws that would be in effect in those localities. 
So it's a really powerful tool, but our customers don't know that if we say, hey, use geos. We know why geos are exciting, but our customers don't know why geos are exciting. Number two is you have to reduce friction more than you think you do. So a lot of the time when we're giving an answer to a customer on how to do something, we say, well, you know, you just click into this tab and then toggle this setting. And, and it's, it's kind of a, a molehill to us, right? It's a very trivial issue to click around the product a little bit to get something done. But to the customer who isn't necessarily paying that much attention and who has other things competing for their time and attention during the day, that thing that seems like a molehill to us is a mountain to them. And then the third implication, I think, is that we really have to holistically educate our customer, not just on what buttons to click or what to do in a product, but why the features are going to help them do their jobs and how the product is going to help them do their job better. So there's an adage, you know, less is more. We've all heard that before. You apply that to documentation, right? To do better documentation, do less documentation. You know, talk to me about your thoughts around that. All right, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. So I have to be careful with that statement. That's not a blanket statement because often for early stage companies and, and often the, the size of company that I walk into, the problem isn't that they have too much documentation. It's actually that they've underdocumented. But, you know, there's kind of a, a parallel effect here, which is that once a company realizes that they've underdocumented, they start scrambling and they, they take on support practices like knowledge-centered support, which is a great process. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about KCS, knowledge-centered support. It's a great way to start generating high volumes of documentation. But I think some companies end up taking processes like that too far where their focus is on generating as many docs as possible, but not really curating those docs or auditing them for quality. So they end up with a lot of documentation, just in insane amounts that are out of date or duplicative of one another, or ultimately just not discoverable. So my argument here is that it's not about the amount of documentation you have if no one can find that documentation. Instead, you have to focus on taking the documentation you have and making sure that it's discoverable when customers are looking for it and valuable. And those are the metrics that you should track. So, you know, in terms of discoverability, you might look at what content pieces are people finding most often and what are the traffic sources driving them to that? Are you seeing a lot of referral traffic coming in from your product, meaning that you've probably done some sort of in-product badge or tooltip to get them to the right documentation at the right time? Are you seeing organic search, which I think a lot of people undervalue? People don't really want to use your internal search often if they can just Google for information. And where are you seeing those search or support queries for content that you know you already have, but the content isn't surfacing? So if you see some very common search terms for things that you know you have an article on, that means that maybe people aren't finding the right content. So you really have to check when people are searching for your content, are they really finding the content you want them to find? Or are they finding something else? Or are they not finding anything at all? So those are specific problems that, you know, once you start digging into that data, you can actually solve. And then as far as value goes, that's just auditing the value of your content on an ongoing basis. So I like to use the upvote ratio. So upvotes to total votes say, in a Help Center article where you get to upvote or downvote specific pieces of content. And do you update, in addition to the value of content, its accessibility? You know, do you audit that, right? Do you specifically go in and Google search for some of your content and see what comes up and do that on an ongoing basis? Yeah, we used to do this all the time at Optimizely and, and also have our customers do it, you know, when we knew that they were searching for specific pieces of content. So, you know, there's nothing like pulling up uh, an incognito window and trying to search for some of your own content. Now, one thing that was really nice at Optimizely and that 
you know, wasn't true necessarily when I started at Checker, but is true now is that we have really good organic search discoverability for our help content. And a lot of that is not just for specific FAQs or troubleshooting issues, but for industry-related topics. So it's helping us increase our exposure and our brand awareness and becomes a bit of a differentiator for our companies when, you know, a prospect even is searching for specific pieces of information. So the reason I went on that little digression is don't undervalue the value of discoverability and search, not just for helping your customers solve problems, but even for your general brand awareness. So I would say, you know, by looking at how customers are searching for information, what happens when you search for that same information, both in organic search and if you have a, a proprietary internal search tool, that's really important. And that's something that you should be optimizing for. And what about balance of medium types? And let me explain that a little bit. You know, text versus video versus audio content. How do you approach different types of media? I remember the day as the other day as an aside, I was asking someone how to do something, and they're like, "Let me send you a video on how to do that." And I'm like, "I'm not a video consumer because I, I think it just takes longer." And I'm like, "Please God, do not send me a video. You know, just give me the quick instructions." But how do you balance that? I assume there's different types of learners. Oh, I love that anecdote because people make all sorts of assumptions about media that end up just being wrong based on learner preference and based on what's most conducive for that style. So I guess one thing that's worth mentioning is the idea of learning styles, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. The research that's been coming out in the past several decades now actually don't really support that people have one fixed style. What the research is supporting a little more is the idea that the way that you produce a particular piece of learning content should match the learning objective of that content. So, for example, if you're talking about a process that someone is going to need to mirror and follow in the UI of a product, well, then maybe it would be helpful actually to show the UI of the product. So that's where a video sometimes might actually be helpful if you just want to do a quick 30-second click here, click here, click here. But, you know, if you're talking about a more conceptual learning objective, maybe learning how to do a process, that same video probably isn't going to fit the bill. So I think one thing to think about here is there's no one right way to do it. So you have to think about what is best going to help the learner do, in this case, what I want them to do. Now, the other thing to think about is how are you going to update all this stuff? So when you think about text versus video versus doing more interactive e-learning modules and things like that, or even in-product education, you have to think about how much time it's going to take to update that content over time. And we know that text and, and you know, kind of secondarily text with screenshots are the easiest to update, right? It's the quickest to just go in and substitute one line of text for another and you get the diff and, and you see what changed. Updating a video is usually way more time consuming. And if you look at the, the number of hours it takes to produce one minute of video, sometimes the, the results can be really shocking. In, in some cases, if it's high production video, you might be talking about you know, uh, a week or more to do just even a, a quick little video. So you have to think about that too. So that's a good entry point to this next question or starting point for this next question. You know, what are the qualities of a successful customer education training program? So... There's a few that I think about. And, and again, there's not one formula for a successful customer education program. That said, here are some principles that I think are that people don't always think about. One is that idea of make it learner first, not content first. 
when you're thinking about what to put in your training or your onboarding guides or your videos, make sure that you're doing it in response to your learner's actual preferences and make sure that you're doing it with the learner in mind. So make sure not just to cram as much content in as possible, but rather think about how much content do I need to put in to make sure that the learner is motivated to do the thing that I want them to do here. And furthermore, is this something that the learner wants to do? Why is this important for them? So, you know, uh, Simon Sinek has that book, Start With Why. And I think that's a a, a true adage for customer education as well. You got to start with why is this feature important to use? Why do you want to use this feature? How is it going to bring you value? And then you can talk about how to use it. The second principle, I think, is industry focus, not just product focus. Customers don't really care about where to click in your product unless it's going to help them do their jobs better. So think beyond just how to use your product and think more about the skills that would help customers be successful. So, you know, I think about it as one example, TechSmith, who's the company that puts together Camtasia. Their TechSmith Academy is not just tips on how to use Camtasia, it's tips on video production and tips on how to do better screen recording and learning videos and things like that. I think that's a great commitment to their customers to help their customers become more successful in their careers. And then, you know, the third one is you have to think of it as being multimodal. Your customer education program probably will not just be live training. It probably won't just be webinars. It probably won't be whatever the first format you thought up is. So you have to find the right blend of touches for your audience and for your user roles. So, you know, the the admin might get a different set of trainings than the end user. And what the admin goes through might be a little more intensive in some cases. Maybe an admin is willing to go to a webinar or to an in-person course, whereas an end user really just needs some in-product education or something like that. So talk to me about mistakes people make. You know, I I think the mistakes are often just the reverse of what I said. So in terms of learner first versus content first, they start by thinking, oh, I have to do a training and the training is going to be an hour. So what are all the topics I have to fit into that training? And the fact is people just aren't going to remember that stuff. With industry focus versus product focus, one of the mistakes that I see people make all the time is just going through how to use your product as if the learner cares about that without actually talking about why or without actually talking about why this is going to provide value to you in your job or to your business. And then for multimodal, sometimes I I see people who think they have a customer education program, but really they just have some live trainings or they think they have customer education, but they really just have a new user experience in their product, right? So thinking about how to change some of those basic mistakes and and move towards a more holistic vision of customer education. So I read somewhere that you believe, or you might have said or written that the era of customer delight is over. Do you still believe that? And why or why not? Oh man, I have to, I have to stop making so many bold statements, (laughs) but no, I actually, I actually believe this one. And I think that, you know, earlier when we were talking about why you might want to or not want to contact customer support, this is what I'm talking about. There, there was a moment a, a few years ago, and it, it was especially around the time that that book Delivering Happiness came out, where all these companies were adopting the Zappos model. They wanted customers to talk to support because they thought that it was going to increase their customers' happiness because support was this touch point they had to surprise and delight their customers. And that was the key to customer loyalty. And Don't get me wrong. I think that's a component. And especially if the customer has an issue that is really complex and needs to be solved by a phone conversation, then it should be easy to have that phone conversation. And that phone conversation should be 
pretty delightful and empathetic. But using that as your driver of customer loyalty is not sustainable compared to being focused on empathizing with your customer through the product and driving value. So instead of optimizing your reactive interactions like support or even you know, calls that you might have with a customer success manager, you have to be more proactive. So I've, I've seen more research come out that just shows that delightful interactions don't really correlate strongly with renewal. More importantly, I think, is, is to anticipate your customer's needs. So really spend that time listening to your customer, thinking ahead to the future problems they might have, not just the ones they're complaining to you about today, and, and don't make them have support interactions if they don't need to. I like that. So this leads me to something that I, I'm passionate about, and I think product managers need to be passionate about, and that's onboarding. So talk to me about how customer education plays into an effective onboarding strategy. Yeah. So, you know, a few years ago, and, and I'd love to see this study updated if any customer success consultancies are out there listening, but a company called Preact did a study a few years ago that outlined all the different factors that were most predictive of a customer churning. And they had things on there like poor relationship building and product bugs. But actually, the one that turned out to be most predictive of churn was a failed onboarding. So that should tell all the companies out there that nailing onboarding and making sure that you get the customer to that moment of first value is so crucial to supporting the customer throughout that life cycle. And I think one mistake that companies make is assuming that just because they have something called an onboarding, that onboarding is going to work for everyone. So maybe they have training sessions or they have webinars, like I alluded to before, or they have an admin course and a user course or they have an in-product new user experience flow, but they don't really have an ecosystem of programs that help drive the customer to value. So I think one mistake there is just thinking that because they have like an in-product onboarding that that is their account onboarding. So, you know, if you're a product team, focus on value, don't just focus on your features. I think one thing to think about your onboarding is that onboarding isn't just a moment. It's not just the first time that a user uses your product. And it's not just the first moment that an account signs a contract. Onboarding is progressive. So, for example, if you're designing in-product onboarding, it's often more effective to have an onboarding center where a user can go and see the different tasks that they have to perform to get onboarded. And I think the classical example of this is the LinkedIn progression bar, right? So you really want to figure out what you need to do and what you need to set up to get to 100%. And companies are doing much more sophisticated versions of that now, but that's called a progressive onboarding. And it's more effective than just having a feature tour on day one. And similarly, having some sort of user onboarding as well as your account onboarding is really effective because let's say that you train a account when they sign for the first time. Well, what's going to happen a few months later once the people who are in that original onboarding are up to speed, but new users have started? Or maybe some of the people who were in that original onboarding have left or have switched into different roles. So make sure that you've solved both for having an account onboarding and a user onboarding. So we've covered a lot today. If you had to pick your three biggest takeaways from the discussion, what would they be? I guess one is really just to consider how you're educating customers today and think about those myths that we've talked about earlier. Are you under the myth that just because you have a feature tour or just because you have a slide deck that a, a customer success manager delivers that you're actually doing customer education? 
Another one is to really partner with your training and enablement teams. If you're a product manager or a product leader, partner with your training or enablement teams around the customer experience in your product to drive sustainable adoption. Your in-product onboarding and your customer training and education initiatives should really function as one. They should tie into each other. And if you're a product leader, think about how your product might be the front door for customers to get into deeper training experiences over time. And then finally, I would say if you don't have a formal customer education function, it's never too early to start because a lot of the problems that we've talked about throughout our time today, these are problems that develop when you spend too much time in reaction mode and not enough time building a proactive customer experience. So investing in customer education early is a safeguard against that. So let's turn this to Adam a little bit. You know, what's your favorite product? Has anyone said the Instant Pot yet on your show? You know, no one has. Okay, I'm going to go with the Instant Pot. This is actually something that has changed the way that I live in some ways because it's changed the way that I cook and, and what I eat. And nothing's more important than what you put in your body, right? And one thing about the Instant Pot that I think is really cool is that, you know, it's it's pretty intuitive, but there's also a really large user community around it. So if you search for, you know, there's an Instant Pot Reddit, there are Instant Pot cookbooks out there. If you search online for any recipe in the Instant Pot, you're probably going to find a recipe for it. And then when you actually go to use the product, it is pretty simple at the end of the day, like once you've gotten over a, a pretty shallow learning curve. And for me, it's replaced so many of the items in my kitchen that might've been point tools before and it's inspired me to cook in new ways and try recipes that, that I wouldn't have, have had before because there are people sharing all these ideas online. So I'm, I'm a big Instant Pot fan. So I just got one a little bit ago. I, Congratulations. I think about a month ago and I used it for the first time to make chili. So I used it like a slow cooker. So nothing really inventive, new ways to cook there. But you talked about new ways to cook and new dishes Tell me about a new way you've used it to cook or maybe a new favorite dish. We'd love to hear it. Well, you know, the thing is before the Instant Pot, I was not really a a slow cooker person. I didn't have a slow cooker and I certainly wasn't a pressure cooker person, but I was amazed by the fact that I could just, you know, dump this big piece of meat in there and, and you put it in the Instant Pot for what, an hour or less. And it would come out so amazingly tender as if I'd slow cooked it for an entire day. So one that I actually did recently was, it was called an umami French dip sandwich. So you take a big piece of chuck roast and you, know, you, you kind of make a little au jus in there. You caramelize your onions, but you also add some interesting umami flavors in there. So you add a fish sauce and soy sauce and Worcestershire sauce. And I actually found this little umami seasoning at Trader Joe's that they have now called Mushroom & Co. And you know what? That's not something that I would have ever thought to cook before, but because I was searching for Instant Pot recipes, I found that. And it was really fun to make French dip sandwiches at home. Awesome. I mean, I think that might be a plan for this weekend. I haven't used the pressure cooker part of it at all yet, right? I just use it like a crock pot. So maybe that's See, that's, a- that's the money. It's it's the pressure cooker all the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I just haven't, I haven't done that yet. So I think that'll be this weekend. <laughs> so is that your favorite dish you've cooked now, this, uh, this French, umami French dip? That's, that's a great one. I, we, we made, my girlfriend and I made a great Korean beef bowl as well. That was really good. I don't know if I have one favorite. You know, I, 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 like, I like the option of always being able to have a variety of dishes and not feeling like I have to try the same thing twice. So it's, it's nice to have that flexibility. 
Well, I think this weekend will be an experiment. So I think I'm going to go with, you know, the umami French dip and see how it turns out. I'm sure I can find a recipe online, right? Just search for umami French dip. And I think it's the first one that comes up. That's the one I tried. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one final question. Three words to describe yourself. Oh, man. Eric, did, did you ever use OkCupid? This is, this is like, uh, they used to ask this question on your online dating profile. I've and never was- used OkCupid, but <laughs> I think it's a great, I, I actually ask this question in interviews too, when we're hiring. So I, I love this question. It uh, usually gives you like a little tangent you can go down, right? Yeah, well, the, the tangent that I just went down is, is how bad I was at describing this when, when I was on my, uh, my dating profile back in the day. And the three words I used for that question were describing, myself, and failing. That's interesting. <laughs> why, why did you pick those three? Because I'm really bad at thinking up words to, to describe myself. I don't know. It feels egotistical. <laughs> well, that is pretty awesome. So describe yourself. There's a dash failing, right? I guess you're just <laughs> admitting that you're not good at describing yourself. I, I'm going to punt on this. I, I maybe, maybe I could be more vulnerable <laughs> in the future, but I, I think I have to punt. I'm going to make some up when I edit. No, I'm just kidding. All right, perfect. Yeah, uh, do a well, deep th- fake. Thank you, Adam. This was awesome. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It was great talking. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.